0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's September the 8th in a very sunny, warm San Francisco in Northern California. Uh, The heart of... The next revolution in humanity, in the digital revolution. Uh, Some of you will know, though, that I'm not actually from San Francisco. I'm from a very different place. Golders Green in North London, uh, a suburb, uh, what now appears to be a leafy suburb of of North London on the Northern Line, uh, sandwiched between various other residential neighborhoods but many of you won't know that golders green actually has its origins in the 14th century in the enclosure movement and there's all sorts of interesting history this is i've borrowed or taken from wikipedia um the the name golders comes from a manorial common uh next to the settlement in the 13th century so uh london and golders green and north london has uh, some deep um, historical significance, not just personal significance for me, but for the history, economic, political, cultural history of the world. The reason I'm boring you with the history of Golders Green is because uh, I was thrilled to note that my guest today brings up Golders Green at the very beginning of his book. One would have ex- one would not have expected this. It's astonishing, actually. Uh, the book is. Uh, the Exponential Age How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. It's a book about the technological revolution uh, written by uh, Azim uh, uh, Azir, who uh, is also the author of The Exponential View. Uh, but he begins in. Uh, Golders Green, of all places, and I'm thrilled that he's actually talking to me uh, from Golders Green. Uh, Azim, welcome. Andrew, what a pleasure to be here,
1: and can you believe, for the first time in 18 months, my wired internet connection failed just as you hit the live button, and uh, I switched to the Wi-Fi uh, in order to get it back. I don't know what's happened. I am here. Well, I'm as you god note in
0: the book, Azim, we all exist in more than just flesh. And I'm sure there is some mystical element there. Maybe the, the god of technology is warning you not to talk to me today. Uh, Azim. the exponential age and, of course, the word exponential, I looked it up. For those of us who aren't as, as, as literate or as techno-literate as Azim. the word exponential refers to uh, an increase becoming more and more rapid uh, it's mm-hmm. the upward hockey stick. If one had a, a, a Freudian inclination, one might think of it in different terms. But uh, <laughs> why would you begin your book, of all books, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society, in leafy golders green? Well, that's a great great question. Uh,
1: the reason I start there is because when I began the research in, in the, into the book, uh, I was trying to think about how the technologies actually change the ways that we live. And I happened on a simple fact that in 1895, where my house is today, uh, it was a field and 200 meters to the northwest, uh, where my convenience store is, was a blacksmith's uh, shop. and. And that by 1925, only three decades later, the roads were laid out the way they are laid out today. The electricity system was in place and the houses had pretty much exactly been built as they are today, 100 years later. And and what happened in that 25 year, 30 year period was that these three technologies of the telephone, the car and electricity emerged independently uh, and, and were very quickly built into our societies and in a 30-year period our way of life turned from being uh, a late industrial Victorian still quite agrarian in some cases life to that modern suburban city way of life that we've lived with for the last 90 years and my contention is that we have today four families of very generalized technologies that will Create and catalyze the same kind of shift, but unlike the technologies of a hundred years ago, they are, as you point out, um, exponential. They are accelerating in their capabilities very rapidly.
0: Uh, I was um, yesterday. I, I interviewed uh, Edward Glazer from Harvard University. Mm. He has a new book out, "Survival of the City," and he has a section uh, like you. He sees cities as being defined increasingly by digital technology. He has an interesting uh, section in the book on the great futurist Alvin Turfler, who wrote, I think, mm-hmm. still probably the the classic book about digital modernity, uh, Future Shock. Mm. Uh, Asim, uh, Turfler writes, of course, about speed and dramatic disruptive change. What are you saying that Turfler didn't say in Future Shock?
1: Well, I, I have, uh, first of all, tremendous respect for him, but I have the advantage of being Uh, 50 years on, and we're able to uh, see how these uh, technologies have really manifested themselves. Uh, And they've manifested themselves in ways that um, some ways are are, are predictable from like a product perspective. You know, the idea of small devices we can talk into. But they have also uh, fundamentally changed the nature of power uh, in ways that we perhaps hadn't understood. Um, and I describe this uh, this idea as the exponential gap, a gap between the potentials of the technology uh, and the everyday institutions and habits and customs that govern the way that we live our lives. Um, and so what I think we we now live with and experience that many futurists uh, perhaps weren't able to um, bring as much uh, sort of granularity and credibility to, because they were, were, were early, is the reality that we see the rise of very powerful corporations that make unilateral decisions, not just about competitive economies, but about the nature of our politics, that we see um, a bifurcation in labor markets, uh, that we see uh, a rise in different types of conflict. Uh, and I think that these are all traced back to the idea of the exponential gap. Um, and so in a sense, I'm i admire the technology explain
0: what the exponential gap uh, your book's called the exponential age you uh Mm -hmm. uh your 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 popular newsletter and podcast is called the exponential view you've obviously got exponential on the brain what is the exponential gap what's what what, what, what exactly is that well yeah
1: that's um I mean, if we think about the technologies, the technologies of the, the day, whether it's um, semiconductors and silicon chips and how fast they get, whether it is um, how cheaply we can read the human genome and then apply it in, in therapeutics and, and other areas, uh, those are all uh, improving exponentially. It's that upward sloping curve, that the picture that you showed earlier. Uh, but our everyday Patterns and habits and norms and in institutions—they are very linear. They move at a much slower pace than the potential of so technology. Uh, well, well,
0: humans the context- are not uh, because we we still haven't um, we haven't experienced uh, Ray Kurzweil's singularity. We're still moving at the same pace as early twentieth-century people in Golders Green, are we, Azim?
1: Well, I mean, roughly at the same pace, because we've we've had a bit of time to think about it. But we are not well constituted. That's certainly what the scientists tell me to understand exponential systems and exponential processes. I think the pandemic uh, taught us that. It taught us that um, even especially our politicians were not able to see how quickly an exponential spread of a a virus was going to take hold. Uh, So we're not well constituted, nor are the things that we turn to well constituted to deal with that change and those things i mean our laws and our systems of competition and our our customs yeah. and, and habits and that is the explanation we gap. call that azim yeah.
0: do we call that uh borrowing from uh, gordon moore azar's law i, I if you want to co-
1: coin it that uh, andrew i'd be uh uh, uh yeah it's um, a law yeah. that
0: other people have observed i think turfler talked about it as well one of the things I liked about the book, Azim, is um, is your notion of what you call uh, the unlimited company. We had um, Brad Stone on the show recently. He's been on several times talking about his new book about Amazon. I think he's very much in your camp. Companies you suggest like Amazon uh, and Facebook and Google and Apple, these are different from traditional industrial companies. They are the Companies of the exponential age, and there, and, and I like this word you you chose, unlimited. What do you mean by that, and what's its significance? Uh, what I mean is that the force of gravity that
1: used to contain companies uh, doesn't apply to the winners of the exponential age. Uh, in the time that you and I were were born, uh, companies simply found it too hard to get too big. Competition would appear, or would be get get too expensive to secure raw materials. And what you would see would be markets where there might be three, four, five competing firms in the car industry, 10 or 15 competing firms. In the exponential age, uh, because of the power of of a number of factors, including things like network effects, these companies get really, really big and they end up being the number one and who cares about number two. It's like David Mamet's play uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, where the first prize is market dominance and the second prize is who cares. Uh, And that's a case in social networking, in search, increasingly in in e-commerce. As they get bigger, they spit off more, more cash, which they are increasingly capable of investing in new areas. So Amazon, which was a bookstore that I remember, now makes films, and it runs a logistics network. And Apple, which made computers, makes health monitoring uh, uh, watches and is going to get into the car business soon enough. Somehow they have found a way of expanding in in the way that economists call both uh, horizontally into new sectors and vertically up and down their supply chain. So most of these companies now make their own silicon chips uh, as well, and that is pretty dramatic. We haven't seen that in history. Uh, when I started my newsletter, um, Amazon and Apple and Alphabet were, had a market valuation about a quarter of what they have today. And back then, people said, how much bigger <coughs> can they get? Well, they're multi-trillion dollar companies now and they can get bigger.
0: Uh, one way of putting that is the ugly truth. Uh, Shira Frankel was on the show recently also talking about Facebook, a different kind of ugly truth. But it is an ugly truth which is extremely important and i was thrilled that you brought it up because it i think it shines light on what lena khan and some of the critics of of, of, of this new techno monopoly capitalism are trying to do both in washington and what uh, margaret vestiger is doing in brussels why mm-hmm. does the unlimited company azim change or why, in your view, I was really intrigued with your argument here, or you, I'm not sure if you formalized the argument, but you implied it. Why does the unlimited company or why should the appearance of the unlimited company in our age of this, in this exponential age, change the law on monopolies?
1: I, I, it's such an important question. Uh, the reason is that <clears throat> when we've looked at monopolies, uh, historically, certainly for the last 40 or 50 years in in the U.S., we've taken a very um, uh, sort of neoliberal view about what
0: is it to be a successful company, which is you you provide products at really, really low cost to. And, and that was borrowed from the late 19th, early 20th century from American law. Just assume that if it benefited the consumer, it's OK. But that's no longer the case, is it? Right. It's no longer the case, because uh, what we start to see
1: is, um, Bad behavior in slightly other areas. So, for example, um, it might be very cheap for us to receive deliveries of, of restaurant food, but it might be very, very harsh on the DoorDash driver uh, or rider who is delivering it. So that the pain is being born buried somewhere that's not necessarily visible to the consumer. I mean, that that's one aspect. A second aspect is that there the, the technologies create new spaces, things that we used to think of as just being out of the realm of the markets, the conversation that you or I might have. Um, and increasingly, the technologies enable private companies to enclose those public spaces and turn them into private spaces where they write the rules. Simply put, public conversation happens on Twitter and Facebook, and the rules of that conversation are now governed largely by fiat of private executives. Now, that is not necessarily a traditional economic monopoly or comp- competition economic economics problem, but it is a problem around democracy and accountability and sort of negative impact on what it is to be a citizen.
0: And it brings us back, Azim, as always, to Golders Green, because Golders <laughs> Green was born in the age of the first enclosure uh, in the 14th century, as I noted at the beginning. And right. what you're suggesting is that we're living in the age of, of what you call, it's not your term, it's the uh, James, it's Boyle, James Boyle, Professor of yeah. Loyal, the second enclosure movement. And I was particularly intrigued by that and your integration of Eleanor Ostrom into the argument because she's someone who's becoming increasingly fashionable, uh, a Nobel Prize-winning economist who most people still don't really know. Why is Ostrom and this whole own notion of the second enclosure movement why is it so significant in terms of making sense of our, our exponential age? It's really
1: uh, important because for the the bulk of the exponential age, really from the start of um, the the semiconductor industry in the late sixties, um, economic orthodoxy has been uh, driven by the idea uh, that comes from the Chicago School that there are, there's the market and there's the state. If you want to um, you know regulate economic resources. The market is brilliant at resource allocation and anything that it's not good at, you just chuck at the state, which will do a bad job. Now, there's a problem with that conception because there are other ways of organizing resources. And Ostrom uh, looked at those and she saw kind of collective systems of governing resources that she called commons. Uh, and she says, look, these things can be self-governing. And the, the, the strange thing is the beauty of the Internet, as, as you know, is that the internet was a self-governing commons for a very, very long period of time. That's what open source software is. That's what Wikipedia is. So that the power of Ostrom is to provide us with uh, the, the theory and some of the evidence that you can look at economic resources and you can organize them in a way that is neither from the duress of the, 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 the state, nor is it at the mercy of a, a, of a profit-seeking market but is run for the benefit of the people who participate in it. And I think we're starting to um, see cases of of, of more organizations trying to think of organizing our resources on a commons basis. And we now have the digital tools that increasingly let us do that.
0: Yeah, It's really interesting you say that earlier this week. I'm not sure if you you watched or heard the show. We had the great Greek uh, Marxist economist and politician Yanis Varoufakis on the show. Hmm. Uh, he has a new book out called Another Now, which imagines that future, that future of a, of a, of a digital uh, commons. Um, uh, and, and the headline from, from LitHub Hub earlier uh, this week was on, on alternatives to techno-feudal capitalism. That's beautiful. I, I, I don't think you like uh, Varoufakis is a Marxist, but do you think that's a fair way of describing this current arrangement with these unlimited countries, uh, c- companies, in our age of, ex- in our exponential age, uh, techno-feudal capitalism.
1: Uh, I think it's a really great way of describing uh, describing it in a, you know with very very lurid. Uh, colors you know we can think of uh that um that movie elysium right where the rich live in the uh the, the space station out of uh, uh out of orbit and uh the rest of us sort of ply our trade in this kind of hideous polluted planet um i think there is a risk that we we head in that direction um being fed a sort of a constant set of shiny tchotchkes uh to keep us happy that are being produced by factories uh all, all over the world and and i you know personally think that Many of our real issues are ones of tremendous widespread scope. They're collective problems, uh, and that people should be able to make their decisions closer to where they they live. Um, and that means that you can't you have to have some form of subsidiarity, some form of form of accountability. And I think commons approaches could really start to uh, help us do that. And in my my book, I identify, even in slightly crazy areas like energy generation, the pr- production of electricity is something that can increasingly be done and run and organized at a community level. And that hasn't been true for a you know, hundred years.
0: It's a new zeitgeist, I think, Azim, that you're representing Capturing. Everyone gets it. Earlier this week, I also talked to Rob Reich from Stanford. He and three mm. other very Powerful professors at Stanford have a new book out, System Era, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. It's a different kind of book from yours, but it's basically saying the same thing, that we need to control not only these unlimited companies, but exponential growth, um, exponential change uh, in the name of society. Is this the new zeitgeist? Is it everywhere? You're in Golders Green. Can you see it in the streets?
1: I, you know, I hang out with uh, people who are involved in the, in the tech industry and increasingly they are asking the question of themselves, "Um, how do I not turn into Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, and what By that, they don't mean... At least I have to get I... a
0: better haircut, right? He looks so... <laughs> right. That's the thing about Zuckerberg. Uh, he looks so miserable. He doesn't even seem to be having fun. At least he could enjoy himself. Yeah, and I think their observation is less about... You know, building a successful company, which which Facebook is
1: by any sort of investor me- measure, but it's more about, um, you know, how do I feel like I'm contributing while I'm being uh, successful? And I see this across a plethora of different different companies. And I think we increasingly have the tools and the technologies that allow us to 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 do that. I, I love your use of the word zeitgeist because um, I think you start to see this. In um, in other ways, and sometimes it is about mood music. I mean, just in the last day or so, the right-wing British government has um, raised taxes, or was intended it's going to raise taxes to levels that we haven't seen in the UK for seventy years, um, in order to spend on social security and and social care. Uh, and that is that's the right wing. That's a conservative party. Uh, and and so there is a zeitgeist and a mood music against this notion of. Um, you know, efficiency uber Arles. Um, And I think even within the entrepreneurs, I'm an investor and in, uh, as well that I talk to, um, they're not exclusively focused on juicing the lemon uh, now in a way that perhaps they were a decade ago.
0: Speaking of the zeitgeist, the guy who perhaps led this, led the great critique of Silicon Valley was the novelist Dave Eggers. Uh, his mm-hmm. 2013 book, The Circle, was the best book still and um, on, on what we might call surveillance capitalism, he has a new book out uh, this week. It's called The Every. I'm actually talking to him tomorrow. I'm very excited about wonderful. it. And it's about resistance. Is resistance the new zeitgeist? I had um, uh, Sarah Horowitz on the show uh, last year. She's a wonderful labor organizer and writer. Is the key thing to figure out in our exponential age, Azim, how to resist as workers, as citizens. You also have a fascinating chapter on the exponential citizen, which I was particularly intrigued with. You know, I think
1: that uh, I hadn't thought of it in terms of of resistance, but now that you say that, um, resistance does become quite important within the book. I uh, talk about uh, what's happening in the the labor market. And I say that actually, you know, historically, the only way employees have managed to get a good deal And that has ended up being a good deal for society as a whole It's by being able to organize and use their collective strength against an employer. And, you know, we've seen workers start to within even Google in the last couple of years, try to organize uh, and uh, push back on the bosses who treat them so very, very well in general. Uh, And so I think there is a sense that organization and standing up and saying this is what we really want. Um, out of these systems, it becomes very, very important. Um, having just published uh, uh, a book and it launched on the uh, the 7th of, of September, uh, I was intrigued to see that quite a lot of my friends uh, are buying their, their copies from their local bookstore uh, rather than just buying it from the e-commerce giant uh, du jour. Uh, and they're doing that with a sort of sense of um, you know, I want to support this alternative, and I'm yes, I'm paying ten dollars more. Uh, but this alternative matters because hidden in that ten dollar, uh, uh, you know, lower price is a bunch of kind of unwanted consequences that we might have to live with for
0: decades. How fearful should we be, Azim, of today's disruptions? Uh, I take your point on the change in the zeitgeist. We're very wary of Amazon now and Facebook. But the real dangers on the horizon are beyond Amazon, beyond Facebook, beyond Microsoft, Mm. perhaps even beyond Silicon Valley. There are two things in particular, it seems to me. One is artificial intelligence, and the other is cryptocurrency and a a, a radical disruption of the traditional notions of value and money. Um, How does, and and I know these are big questions, you can't Mm. answer them (laughs) fully, but how does AI and crypto Play in both to the exponential age, and to the kind of resistance and rethinking of the commons and of labour mm. that, that that's so central to your book.
1: Yeah. Also, well, so AI, I think, um, is. Fundamentally, it's it's a technology. It's a technology like any other. Uh, It does have, especially these new learning-based systems, this dynamic that as one AI gets better, uh, it will continue to get better and it'll be harder for there to be alternatives. Uh, And so what you do see is um, a heavy, heavy investment by venture capitalists and by the large companies in building um, AI systems that are really, uh, to the rest of us, quite expensive. Uh, to to build and to compete with. And I see that as part of the challenge of the enclosure, because within these AI systems are going to be codified, um, things that we will end up relying on uh, for the everyday. So if the world's largest language models, those are AI systems that can read text and provide answers, are actually owned by private corporations, in a sense, humanity's knowledge is residing within uh, the realm of a private Corporation, and we can't understand how it's exploiting that, and how that profit-seeking missile is going to uh, yeah. allow us that. Uh, that it's knowledge.
0: interesting you bring that up. Rob Reich uh, and his fellow authors warn warn us very strongly about that at the end of his book about these new AI platforms that claim to be working in the name of humanity, but are actually privatizing language, creating enclosures, second or third enclosures around language. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really well taken. Um, Yeah. And then what about crypto? I I, I, I throw the crypto bomb at you, Azeem. I know know, people who really want all your wisdom on this need to subscribe to your... uh, They obviously need to read uh, The Exponential Age, which is a marvelous read. And they also need to subscribe to your Exponential View. But what's your take on crypto in terms of The Exponential Mm. Age? You you know, crypto is uh, a really powerful technology
1: because it's a governance technology. It it is a technology that allows groups of people to come in and make decisions about things. Now, that's really quite, uh, quite nerdy. And I think we lose sight of the potential of crypto because of the amounts of speculative money that are running around that are a little bit um, kind of grotesque at times. And the fact that there is... um, there is so much hoopla around it. But the interesting thing I think that crypto provides us is a way of building some of those com- commons governance ideas that Eleanor Ostrom uh, right. talks about. And in fact, there's one very good crypto project called Filecoin, which actually on their website refers to Ostrom uh, in their in their white paper, their technical white paper. So you do see that... Um, some people are thinking about it that way. I think crypto is is here to stay. Some of the very, very smartest software developers I know are working in crypto projects. They're not working in, in mobile apps. But but if I may, there is actually a, I, there is a, a third problem, which I think is bigger than the other two, which is a climate change challenge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if I add a sentence on that, um, we're going to need pretty amazing technologies uh, as part of our, quiver of arrows to tackle uh, climate change. And, you know, we won't, I think, get there without some of these technologies that we have today and those coming on the horizon. But the technologies in of themselves don't solve the problem if they're not governed well, and if we don't manage the resources that they use well. And that brings us back to this fundamental question, which is, yeah, the technologies are really exciting, but the humans and the human institutions have to catch up and figure out how to apply them properly.
0: And that brings us to work, um, labor, which I think is also Ooh. central to your book. We had James Sussman on the show last year. I always refer to his book. Uh, it's a, a deep history from the stone age to the age of robots, which is a sort of nostalgic Rousseau and take on labor and work. What I like about your book is that you're not a nostalgist. You're not suggesting we go back to the enclosures of the 13th century in Golders green, that we need to move forward, but we need to rethink or inevitably we have to rethink work because technology is replacing us, uh, but in the way it's replacing us right now, in the exponential age, it's only creating inequality. So, mm-hmm. and of course, it touches very much on the the issue of global warming, warming because uh, our work habits are are, are deeply um, uh, in, embedded with the, the destruction of, of the environment. So. Again, I know these are big questions, Zazim. Work. Look forward Mm. rather than backwards. Don't be a nostalgist. Don't don't, don't become Jean-Jacques Rousseau.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not a nostalgist. I I recognize that uh, we're going to have increasing amounts of automation. I think we are going to see uh, the idea of gig working uh, spread beyond uh, the the sort of most precarious jobs throughout the uh, economy, uh, that... In workers, whether they're fully employed or not, will increasingly be monitored by uh, algorithmic systems. This is the the time card uh, writ large. And if I may, just a tiny little segue that the inventor of the um, of the, the the punch clock was um, and sort of time uh, based management uh, was a, a dropout of the same high school that Mark Zuckerberg sorry, a a graduate of the same high school that Mark Zuckerberg went to and a dropout of Harvard, uh, which is quite a sort of interesting parallel. So there are these tensions uh, for for the worker. Um, We have to accept that many of these changes are here. And so then the question is, how do you allow workers to participate in redefining what that agreement should be? And I think this is what the Luddites tried to do a couple of hundred years ago. I mean, the Luddites were, uh, I'm going to argue, were arguing in favour of being able to participate in the governance and introduction of new uh, weaving technologies and also therefore be able to share in some of the upside. Uh, And what we need to be able to do is to ensure that workers can participate in the discussions that that happen there, and they are stakeholders, too. Um, but there, there is a slightly Well, I don't
0: like that term stakeholders, uh, Azim. It's, it's very old fashioned. We have to come up with a better mm-hmm. word. This is certainly something yeah. that Yanis Varoufakis yeah. in another now uh, imagines a, a world. It's a mm-hmm. it's a P2P world kind of, I guess, in some ways. I don't know. I'm sure he's read Alan or Ostrom, uh, inspired by his notion of the comments. It's all fascinating stuff. We can't end, Azim without going back to Golders Green where everything began and also <laughs> yeah. ends at the Golders Green crematorium. My uncle was uh, buried there. Some of the rest of my family, um, we had, um, Sergey Young on the show recently. Uh, the, one of the ideologists of longevity, he says that we can live for 150 or 200 years. He's in there with Peter Diamantis and, uh, and, uh, Ray Kurzweil. Um, how does the a the exponential age, how is it gonna impact on us in biological terms in terms of living to one hundred and fifty and two hundred? How is it gonna because it seems to me that ultimately that, when we look back in two or three hundred years, maybe you and I even conceivably, mm. uh, although very unlikely, you more than me, um, that's how the 22nd or 23rd century world will differ from the 20th and the 21st century.
1: Well, we've made great progress, haven't we, in uh, extending longevity uh, around the world. Uh, What we haven't been able to do uh, as much is increase what people call the health span, right? How do you and not only live to 120, but how do you have 120 flourishing years and then as a calm and peaceful uh, death as you, you can? Um, and that that is a really interesting frontier. Um, I think the, the question is why are we pursuing that uh, goal and uh, what's, what's driving it and how well do we sit against our collective problems today? I mean, I deliberately steered away from discussions of longevity, uh, partly because You've, a book is only so long, uh, but also partly because we have kind of present discussions about how do we make these technologies and the companies that build them work for us all collectively. And that's really been my my focus in trying to bridge the gap between the policymaker or the ordinary person and the person in Silicon Valley who is the builder.
0: Yeah. And again, it it doesn't require a genius to see the contradiction between people like Young and Kurzweil who believe we can live to 150 and 200. And the utter crisis and collapse of the american healthcare system which we which i talked about with tom hartman yesterday so again that reflects the profound inequalities in our exponential age there's so much to discuss we've got to end Mm -hmm. uh though um um, uh, uh, azim azaz the exponential age how accelerating technology is transforming business politics and society May not quite be up there with uh, Future Shock by Alvin Turfler, but it's a very, very good read, a very important read. Congratulations, Azim, as you speak to us Thanks from so Golders much. Green. In addition to your new book, The Exponential Age, what else should people be reading in these strange times at the in the middle of our exponential age?
1: Well, I'm really enjoying uh, a book called Outline uh, by Rachel Cusk. It's uh, it's fiction. It's about came out about six years ago. Uh, what I love about uh, her book is the the protagonist is a flaneur quietly observing the complexities of life. And she brings us back to the, the, the humanity and the, the dirtiness, the sort of um, the complexity, the inconsistency of what it is for people to be people and the relationships they have and what they really think. And she does it so parsimoniously, every single word is honed, uh, sharply. And I would really recommend it, especially if people are spending too much time reading about economics or technology uh, or regulation. Rachel Cusk's outlined
0: that. Yeah, we'll have to get her on the show. I've actually got Jeanette Winterton, Jeanette Winterton coming up in a couple of weeks, who's written also a book about AI and technology. She's That's a wonderful right. writer too. So Azeem Azhar, yeah. a uh, real honor. Keep Keep up the good work. We'll have you back on again. So much to discuss. Uh, which we haven't even touched on. Keep doing your good work and congratulations again on the book. Thank you very much. Thank,
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. My pleasure.